Welcome to the sixth episode of the Model 284 podcast. My name is Sam Walzak, and today I'm joined by Mark Richards and Jack Werner, and we are sponsored by Wallace Carlson Printing. Today is Wednesday, March 30th, and on today's show, we give some background on our NBA draft models, discuss draft theory and positional value, and look a bit at the 2018 draft class. If you enjoy this podcast or our previous podcasts, we appreciate ratings and reviews, and make sure you're subscribed on iTunes. With that, let's get started. So here we are for another episode. We're gonna be talking mostly NBA draft today. We're still kind of in the in the home stretch of the NBA and NHL playoffs, but once those wrap up, we'll have NBA draft, and then it's kind of sports abyss with just baseball through the rest of the summer. So um, got Mark with me here today. We've also got another fellow model two eighty four or Jack Warner. Mark and Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be on with you guys. Yeah, I'm excited. NBA draft season. I mean, we just, it's NBA playoffs right now, and what do you know? We've got Golden State and Cleveland back in it, as every predictive model probably had, like, <laughs> Toronto or or Boston versus Houston, and yet another year, it's it's uh, Cleveland versus Golden State, so that's fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting kind of sick of it. I, would, I feel like I'd enjoy it more if Cleveland was better, and I, I don't know, it's just... It doesn't seem like they have much of a shot. Yeah, it's it's painful in that respect, and then it's just like it just like seems like it's the know. same storylines recycled over and over again now too. Yeah, it's it's tough to like, and, and I think I mentioned this before, but like compared to the NHL, it's just like you almost like the randomness of like being making like the harder it is to predict and like whatnot and that randomness like adds fun because there's that belief as a fan that like your team can make the run but anyway i i think i think we've all kind of gotten sick of that story by now in the nba yeah yeah i don't think we have the the series predictions out yet i think eric will be updating those this week um but we do have our our spread and total predictions for every game up on the site we've been cranking those out for all the playoff games for game one of the finals golden state's favored by 12 and our model has them favored by 13.9. And then uh, the total is it's around 215 right now, but our, our model is down in the, the two, 211, 210 range, so like in the under there. Um, model's still doing well. Uh, they're both around 59% for all the games so far this year, so hopefully they can pick up a couple more wins in the finals here and then end on a good note. Um, also in the middle of the NHL playoffs, um, got down to Stanley Cup Finals. You got the Golden Knights against the Capitals. Um, Capitals lost Game One, high scoring affair. Mark, what was your analysis of the game? It was it was interesting. I mean, they're both. I mean, it was very high scoring, like you said, which was like super entertaining. Vegas. I mean, you saw home ice come into play. I think a little bit, and you had that Ryan Reeves goal, but it was a close match, and I think. I think ultimately, I think most people will have leaning Washington if you break down the stats in this series. 
Vegas has obviously had this historic run, and they continue continue to keep it going. And it was kind of crazy to see Flurry, who had been so good, and the reason they'd been winning was keeping people low scoring. And you know his that regression, yeah. his regression on his his save percentage, which all the analytics folks have been hollering at on Twitter, is like comes to fruition but then yet they score six goals which i don't think you saw coming i'm not as deep in the numbers on hockey but i swear every vegas game that i've watched they score in like the first five minutes of the game is that it's got to do with their antics on their like pre-game, their pre-game stuff like, it's, it's working. Yeah, yeah i don't know there's a lot of hockey people are completely torn i feel like too like do you want vegas to win for the sport like is it bad for the sport in the sense that like an expansion team can just come in and win and like they supposedly pick parts although in this scenario i think they did get a good shake on who they could pick based on the rules. right maybe the lesson is just that they need to be a little bit more strict on their criteria for expansion teams and how they can select their players yeah i don't know and it, it, it does show how the nhl is a bit of a crapshoot although our our predicted bracket was pretty darn good before the year and i i, I don't know I feel I think we feel pretty good about it, but a lot of considering a lot of other analytics folks had had other teams making the run. So yeah, it was it was hot on Vegas from the beginning. It had them in the in the finals, yeah. right? Yeah, and I think it was just yeah their their route. I think we've talked about was a little bit easier, and so in more scenarios they were coming out of it, and so you know, and I I think a little bit of that random hotness of flurry has really gotten them this far. So, but. With that, I mean, I think we're here really to talk some NBA draft now. So it is NBA draft season, and as you guys know, we put together a lot of NBA draft models that essentially look to project players from college basketball and even now international into the NBA. And I think what's we all think super fun about the draft and gets a lot of a lot of folks super curious into it is that you know you're looking at the future LeBron James or Steph Curry's or Connor McDavid's in hockey but in in the NBA especially we talk about how valuable it is to really capture or find those super um, high performing players because they make such an impact on that sport relative to other sports right in the NBA it's really so much of winning championships come down comes down to just having the best players and NBA draft, I think, is, is a little bit higher stakes because of that. And it's an interesting time as well just because it has that element of the importance of finding a star combined with the huge volatility of NBA prospects. You know, it's there's such a range of possible outcomes, and it's so hard to predict that it really is an interesting, interesting time to dig your teeth into a little bit. Right, and everybody has their own opinions, right? It's like it yeah. just, and they, you, you sift through it, but I think, you know, one of the things that is important to consider, there's a lot of opinions and there's a lot of variables to consider. And one thing that we use as as we're here to talk about is our NBA draft models. And I think kind of the biggest thing that we emphasize is that it's a tool and it's kind of a piece to like helping you make better decisions. And I think one thing that, you know, me and Sam, who both work in the reinsurance industry, which we kind of compare to, so, so we work in I'll give a little background on, on how we kind of can kind of align the NBA draft models with our current work. But we work in reinsurance industry and catastrophe modeling. So essentially what in short, super short what we do is we run, you know, catastrophe models, which would be like 
They're, Hurricanes, yep. earthquakes. Yep, so they're simulating and... like hurricane events, so like Hurricane Irma that came in. We do that against insurance companies' books, and then we get you know probabilities of loss totals. Right, so for a given insurance company, the catastrophe model would produce a loss distribution of, you know, there's a 1% chance that you have a loss over a million dollars this year, um, that type of result. Yeah, exactly. So you take that, and then what our the kind of broking team will do, and kind of all parties will take part of the insurance company, and, uh, you know, the reinsurances, they'll come together and they'll kind of say, okay, we need to buy this much reinsurance because, you know, this is what our estimated losses are. And, the, and it's kind of just one component and in the business decision of how much reinsurance they buy. And, you know, there's assumptions and, under, and like, the, the, how valid the underlying data is. It kind of goes into how confident you feel about the loss results you get. And so... What you typically see is you'll have like an analytics manager or, you know, somebody that's kind of in charge of breaking down the catastrophe loss results. And then you kind of have, you know, broader higher ups that will then take those results as one part of their decision and they'll kind of weigh them by how confident they feel. And, you know, I, I think, and, and this is true in all business, and I think Sam Hinkey made a good reference in that this is the sports industry in general is just far like decades behind like the business world insurance finance and everything and that like we really should be using these tools to to assist in our decision making and understanding you know what they're doing but there seems to be just a huge kind of rejection of them and for some reason a stubbornness into it and maybe it's honestly that there's what like only 30 teams in the nba and there's you know, million, I don't know. Right, and all the different tons. owners have different motivations, and you can extend what you said even further to to different sports, right? I think you would definitely say that for the NFL, and maybe you'd say it for the NBA too, but much less so than the NFL. And Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. What, what I was, like, alluding to in the terms of numbers, it's like, okay, so you have tons of businesses with tons of different managers, and you can see how they're successful and not successful. And, like, you can see you talk to, you know, insurance company X, insurance company Y, and you have a lot more people doing different things. So maybe just the closeness and limited numbers is interesting. Um, I think another kind of, like, draft theory to consider that's super interesting is when you are evaluating prospects is kind of thinking about the tail risk of players. Like, as we alluded to, like, in the NBA, what, LeBron James has been in the last eight finals Steph Curry's been in the last four, and those players that are on that that extreme tail risk, so those, like, thousand-year hurricanes, like, should you be targeting them more? Like, it seems like you can't win a championship unless you have them. Or, I mean, I don't know, maybe you can, and I think that's that's something you, you have to weigh is, like, should you be thinking, should you be going more for a tail risk player or should you be going for more steady player? And I think that ultimately leads into kind of team by team assessment of, of you know, what your team needs and why that that how that can work. Right. Into if it. if theoretically, well, even where they're picking, but let's say the Warriors had a high pick in this year's draft, they would probably be handling it differently than a team like the Suns or the Kings, who have you know very little all star potential on their team currently whereas the Warriors already are loaded with it, and their goal is just to win again next year, which they can probably do regardless of who they add. They might not need to aim as high. 
Right, which is why it's so important in this process to um, take into account more than just, you know, single point estimates of what a player could be and rather assess, you know, all of the possible different outcomes that could come from drafting a player and that can give you a more holistic view and you can kind of tailor it based on your team whether you're looking for someone who has that super high ceiling or whether, you know, if your team is already well established, you need someone with a high floor, for example. Yeah, and another piece that I think further complicates this is um, you have all these players and you have your predictions for how they're going to do in the NBA, but we, we've seen so many situations where a player gets put in a really bad situation and they struggle, or a player gets put in a great situation and they thrive, and I think we see a lot of good examples of that with, with Boston this year and some of their young players who have done really well under Brad Stevens. Um, a lot of the guys who probably weren't pegged with very high potential by, by analytics, um, some of them are, but you know, your Terry Rozier and some of those other guys who have flourished there, um, I think it, it articulates the, the piece about how your situation is going to play into your development. And the flip side um, can happen sometimes, too, where you get a, a player who goes to a bad team, and because of that, gets a lot more playing time, and the stats you know, maybe look a little bit better, or at least the volume is there a little bit more than someone who goes to a playoff team, and you know, that's definitely a factor that like, we've had to consider when looking at the data. Like Andrew Wiggins. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about Andrew Wiggins, to be honest. I think Boston, again, another interesting point is when, okay, like when you assess, okay, so it says how good this a model says this is gonna be. This player is just gonna be good, or this scout says this is the best center that he's seen in a long time. But you have to understand, like, I mean, Boston when they played Philly, like Joel Embiid was like had to come off the court in some lineups because he couldn't stay out there, and he's like seen as this diverse center, and it it's like is there more positional value then in wing players because you're playing more of them so. You know, if you only play can play centers in certain lineups, and now you know. Yeah, and we and in Game Seven of Houston Golden State, I mean, Houston played half the game with a lineup of basically everyone six six or shorter, and you know, Capella wasn't out there, and they didn't have any big guys out there. So, maybe maybe our perspective is just being skewed a little bit because the Warriors and now the Rockets, I guess, have have been so dominant. But I mean, when you're trying to beat the Warriors year after year after year, maybe that skews our perspective a little bit. Yeah, and that's uh, you know, it's that's another challenge, is just that the league is always changing and the players that are in demand, the types of players are always changing and um, you know, it's it's good in a way, it keeps you on your toes as someone's trying to analyze the draft, um, but it's a challenge as well. Yeah, and it's interesting because you're you have to with that is like say okay, say now you're taking a, a model a draft model and the data that goes into it is built off historical data right so like if you i think the the easy example is he's like carl towns only shooting eight three-pointers now was that calipari part time part the era of college basketball now you're seeing like mo bamba deandre Ayton, all of these guys even bagley they're all shooting 40 50 three-pointers so if if we're going to train a model off carl towns only shooting eight threes in the game and then he ends up shooting 300 threes in the NBA. It, it's tough to, you know, the data 
maybe not representative of, you know, what's coming. But it, so you kind of have to think about, you know, time periods that you train your miles on, just kind of understand what's going into it. Yeah, I think at the player level, Towns is a pretty extreme example. I've seen some interviews with Cal where he's he said specifically, Carl, I know you can shoot threes. You need to develop more of your inside game. So that's what you're going to do at Kentucky. Um I think that's fair, but you also saw it with K-Love, and, like, I, that's what I'm going back to is, like, all those players in that era in college basketball, they didn't shoot threes. Paul Millsap, Kevin Love, Al Horford. Mm-hmm. and But now the, if you put them in your model and then it becomes that they're good three-point shooting, I think what we found, what really came out of it, was the free-throw shooting percentage. What I'm just alluding to in this example is that understanding the inputs and how the game changes and trying to predict future results and how you do that but uh, yeah i agree i mean there it, it's it, there's and situational another, factors like you just alluded to like the kentucky scenario is just yeah and another kind of related but turning it on its head a little bit is you also have you know historical players in the data set where they were playing at a time where a whole team would only attempt five threes <laughs> a game which is just vastly different than the current NBA. Yeah. I suppose you kind of have this problem to some degree with all sports data, but it's definitely definitely of interest for the draft especially. Right, and all of these challenges kind of bring it back to the first point where the statistical modeling of the draft we do is a piece of the puzzle, and it, it certainly can give some, some really helpful insights and, and look at history in a way that we might not be able to do just in our heads, but it's best used, I think, in conjunction with with critical thinking and evaluation and scouting and and so many other pieces. Definitely, I think a piece of the puzzle is a good way to put it. And also, you know, understanding why a prediction is saying what it's saying or, you know, why why is the model saying that Carl Towns has a 50% chance of being an all-star? Sometimes understanding the why is is the more useful piece than the actual prediction itself. Right, and that's the communicating it to the the head decision maker, the coach, or the GM. And I think that's it is a huge part of, you know, the process and that's important to be able to to dissect it on your end and that's kind of your responsibility. And I'd say our like semi responsibility here is like, you know, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to provide insights into, you know, what the the predictors and what what it's saying and why it's liking or not liking a certain player. Yeah, definitely. So, all right, getting into the details of the models a little bit more. So we have a series of draft models on our website, model284.com. We produced all these last year and had a lot of good write-ups on there. If you're interested in going back and looking at what it said about last year's class, all that stuff is um, up there under NBA, NBA draft. Um, so there's there's three models that we're going to talk talk about a little bit. But before we get into them, I think Mark and Jack kind of started these these models in in college, um, and they've they've kind of grown over time. And I don't know if, if you guys want to say a little bit more about the background of those models, and then also so we haven't had Jack on the podcast before, but he's he's been a founding member of Model 284 and contributed to a lot of our stuff. But since we haven't had him on the on the podcast before, maybe, Jack, you can give a little bit of background on yourself and um, how you got interested in sports analytics and what you do for work now, what you've done at Model 284, and then maybe lead that into the NBA draft modeling work. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. I can give a little bit of a background. Um, 
know, I've been into sports analytics for a long time. I, I remember as a kid reading a book called Baseball Between the Numbers, and I saw they use linear regression, and I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And so, you know, from that moment, whenever the opportunity arose to take a stats class or to read some more books, you know, I, I jumped at the chance. And, Little um, four-year-old Jack built the model. And <laughs> that's right. Tap, tap on the Python. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was a quick learner, that's, that's for sure. No, no, I... um. But yeah, once I got to St. Olaf, I majored in math, concentration in statistics, and um, definitely took the chances I could to apply that to sports. Uh, one of the ways I did that was with Mark. We were working on a, on a class project, and that's sort of the where the PNSP model originated, just with the goal of can we predict how good a player will be when yeah, and get I, to the NBA. I think at that time I was like, there's like just a one or two draft models I saw up there, and I saw it on like nylon calculus, and we were in like an, an algorithms for decision making. So this would have been twenty fourteen ish. Twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Yeah. Around that time frame. So it's it's wow, a number of years ago now. We're getting old, but at any rate, yeah, we were ooh, we were like trying to just predict. You know, we want to, you know, kind of build off what had been done, but. You know, a lot of the space hadn't been extremely explored. So, you know, looking at predicting like, you know, all rookie success, rookie year performance, using, you know, box plus minus as a predictor, a bunch of various things to just try to dissect. And part of it was just like understanding what were like significant predictors from college stats, the NBA, and just understanding how we could better predict player players' uh, projections into the NBA. Right. It's such an interesting problem because it's so open-ended you know not only are you looking for what factors from college can predict NBA performance but you're also looking at what NBA performance even is or right. what's the response variable right yeah so that was you know a super interesting process for us and it took us a while to kind of wrap around our heads wrap yeah. our heads around it as best we could right and I think so we did end up kind of coming our first model ever created for the NBA draft was a the PNSP which is peak NBA stat line projection model and I think to give some color to it, one, I think first before going into the details, we did want to provide like a different perspective than just like regressing on box plus minus because that had been like done. And so I think that's part of why we did take the route we did plus a number of other reasons. But I think that's important to know. And two, just like so what it's doing here is we're, we're creating for each player, you know, we're taking – what their individual basketball statistics, their physical measurements, so wingspan, um, you know, weights and whatnot, and then kind of the strength of competition, as well as their high school scouting ranking, incorporated, and then from there we're making a prediction, uh, a prediction on using kind of an ensemble of machine learning and regression techniques, on. Uh, NBA stats, so like they're you know three point three pointers, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, and then so you have you have a bunch of separate models, each of which pulling from the college and physical profile and all those stats that you just went over. So you would you know build a model to predict how many points are you going to score in the NBA? Right. So it, I don't think actually points is one of them, but it, yeah, it would be like you know your two pointers, three pointers. Um, blocks, steals. So we kind of use an, an array of box score statistics that we felt balanced it well from 
honestly a lot of trial and error at start of just kind of what made sense and what didn't and using kind of our weighted understanding of importance of statistics and then once you've made that prediction on each one you can kind of you know look at how those predictions relative to their position look and kind of get like a a standard deviation or a z-score of you know how much above they are on their projected value and then from there you can kind of weight across all of the statistics kind of a scale and aggregate method of you know coming to a final score that's essentially a summation of their z-scores across the different box score statistics okay so you end with a zero to 100 metric for each player that's kind of a composition of all those sub models yeah we do a little little data transformation work thrown in there but ultimately yes it's a zero to 100 score a mean and median roughly around 50 with a fairly normal distribution so that means that if you're above a 90, that's going to be like an elite prospect. If you're below a 10, you're going to be a bad prospect. <laughs> who, who are some below 10 players that off the top of your head? I, I know Karnowski, the Polish <laughs> Gonzaga center, was below. Nigel Hayes, Nigel was, Hayes was yeah. last year. I can't remember all the others off the top of my head. Yeah, well, but there's, that gives us what we need, I think. I honestly <laughs> think Jimmer Fredette might have been like close to that, too, which is interesting because he didn't pan out. But at any rate. Okay, so that's PNSP. Um, so there's two other models that you guys have, have developed. One of them is the NBA role probability model. So this will tie back to some of our earlier discussion, but really trying to break things out into what what is this player what is this player going to look like is he going to be you know a really high end player is he going to be someone who doesn't last in the league right and you know the great part about the the three models that we've developed is that at least we hope that they can complement each other and that you get something a little different out of each one that can help you your understanding of a player so the PNSP model is great cuz it'll you know give you a number and can give you a ranking just of prospects ability uh, but the NBA role probability model can break it out a little further um, and just break down you know how likely is a player to become an all-star or become a role player or be a bust and uh, it, the, the hope is that it can help tease out some prospects you know for example someone who has a high probability of being a decent contributor but not a ton of upside versus maybe a boomer bust type of prospect. I think I think we saw that even last year is a good example like Jordan Bell he was ranked, you know, PNSP had him, I think, at like an 80. And so he was a good prospect. But we, we know wanted more information. Like, is he a guy you're going to want to, you know, is he going to be an all-star? Like, or does he have that sort of potential? And when we kind of look at our role probability models, you know, it had him pegged in the starter bench category, which means, you know, he's very likely to be a contributing NBA player and probably make a good career. But he has limited upside, and I think that met intuition a lot from people, but that's, I think, a good example of what Jack's alluding to, of how you have a lot of, of boomer bust um, type players, and it helps kind of sort through and understand that PNSP score that's giving you more just like a holistic value measure. Right, so the categories for the, the NBA role probability model are all-star, which is the highest one, um, starter, bench player, and non-NBA player. So you want to talk about how those are compiled and how they're related to each other? Yeah, so what we did, and you'll see, I mean, ESPN has something similar to this. A number of other people have done some similar work. What may be unique to ours is we did go through 
and this is where, you know, subjectivity factors into data science, which I think on DataFrame they talked about pretty extensively recently, so I checked that out. But anyway, we went through and we said, okay, we went through every player in our database and said, do we categorize them as an all-star? And we kind of did just some basic decision-making because, you know, we wanted to, we wanted our model to be trained on the right stuff and couldn't find a combination of, you know, greater than 20 points or greater than five rebounds to give us that. Mm-hmm. Or if they were considered an all-star, I, I, I think we differ from what they vote. So we went through and categorized players as all-stars, starters, bench, and non-NBA. And then from there, we created a, a predictive model that essentially is looking at, you know, like a semi-logistic regression that would, you know, a binary response of your all-star starter bench and on MBA. And then obviously those scores will sum to one. So it's essentially going to give you a probability of going into each bucket. Gotcha. And I think I, I get the subjectivity piece, but I think those are those are fairly, you know, separate and well-defined categories. And I think, you know, within All-Star, that's probably where some of the debate would be about, like, a LeBron James versus a Carmelo Anthony. But, you know, I think they're both in the All-Star bucket. So I think I, I like that setup at least. I think those are pretty pretty decent buckets. Yeah, I think they, I think they make sense and they, they work out thus far, too, as you test them and look at them. So... I think, I think it's a fairly good way to get kind of the information you're looking for. Right, and it's certainly a balance between, you know, having more categories to give you more information, but also not overdoing Overwhelming it, and, it yeah. and predicting things that actually yeah. there's not enough. Then you run into just, uh, you don't have enough data to properly train a model to when you start, like, splicing it out. It's just noise gets into it, and I think your prediction gets a lot worse. Honestly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then, so we've got PNSP and then your NBA role probability model, and then the last piece is the similarity scores. And so what those are doing is, you know, you have a given draft prospect, and you want to go back and look at which previous prospects they profile similarly to. Yeah, definitely. So this is like a, I think more, this isn't going to capture like how good you're going to be, but more stylistically, like who compares in your realm of like, do you shoot threes not necessarily your ability to shoot threes somewhat but more of your style of play and I think you know you see a lot you see again a number of people have put some similarity scores together but I think the methodology behind ours was pretty pretty interesting and and fun in that so so essentially what we're doing for this one is again we're using you know individual college statistics and physical measurements and then what we kind of did is we we would we trained our the weights of statistics so you know the difference of your the points in comparing and rebounds per players you trained it on the pair of college players um, to their pairing in the NBA of similarity and then we used a little simulated annealing that would essentially kind of look at the best R squared for the appropriate weights and what you'll find is we kind of broke it down by did a clustering first to get positions because you'll see you know for different positions it weights different statistics more importantly like for centers for instance you get categories of like three-point shooting centers and assists and so there's really kind of interesting information I think in that and weighting those statistics so I think that was like pretty enlightening to kind of see the different position groupings then within them what kind of differentiated them a lot of it met intuition for sure. Yeah, I think this this third of our 
model tri- modeling trifecta might be my favorite one. First of all, just because it was such a, a fun process to put together and the, the methodology was kind of interesting. Um, but also, I think, because it's, it's a little bit more colorful maybe than the other two sides of it, um, you know, it's great to have the numbers and, and, and the hard analytics, but... Um, and not to say that there aren't hard analytics involved in here, but to come up with a player comparison, I think, is, is fun and can really put an image in your mind of what a certain player could be, at least as far as how yeah. they play. And Plus, I think I agree with you, and I think so many of the player comparisons that you hear just in the general sports media are just eye, eye test-based. That's right. like, that's like, like your race, man, yeah, like Kyle Korver <laughs> comp, and yeah. like... Yeah, they always do that in hockey yeah. with like. But even yeah. like all all of them, they're all just like, oh, this guy reminds me of watching this other guy, and I yeah. think you know, taking away the subjectivity and putting some analytics around it is. is and they do align mean. sometimes. And, yeah, and so that's good to see occasionally. But yeah, I completely <laughs> agree with that. That's <laughs> that's funny to to see those those stark differences too. Um, anything else on the, the similarity scores that you guys want to cover? I know one thing that's interesting in just looking at all of them, like you'll get some players who, well, I guess to take a step back, we have a tool on the website where you can just select a player and it gives you their top ten most similar players. So we have a tool with last year's draft class, and we'll be putting together a tool for this year's draft class. But, you know, you put in, say, De'Aaron Fox, and then it lists the ten most similar players of everyone that you guys ran him against. And so you'll get some players who have, and also, I don't know if this was mentioned, but the similarity scores are also from 0 to 100. Um, but you'll get some players who have all of their top 10 similar, pl- most similar players are like a 99.5 or higher. And then you'll get some players where their most similar players like 83 or something like that. So I think another thing that I've found it useful for is you know, I don't know if it's always a good thing that you don't have anyone to compare to, but we have seen, you know, some some very unique players come in. You know, like kind of DeAndre Ayton this year, who's, you know, somewhat of a of a unicorn from a, a physical standpoint, and so yeah. there aren't necessarily a ton of people to compare him to. And occasionally you'll see that play out in the similarity scores. Yeah, and you as you'll like if you play around with it, you'll see it like a lot of those all-star type players. Ben Simmons, for instance, I can recall off the top of my head, he had barely any top. His top similarity score I think was like eighty or ninety, and it's because you have a player of his size, this combination of skills and production just doesn't come around often so that kind of meets your yeah ben ben simmons top one is is julius randall but it's only in 91 yeah and i think you can see the opposite way of it too sometimes though so like i think uh kyle witcher somebody along those lines might might i don't know for sure but they might bring out where you know they are very different, but their game doesn't necessarily translate. So just having it's not it's a, not always a good yeah, thing. Yeah, it's not always a good thing to to not have many comparables. It makes your uncertainty higher, maybe your variance higher. Would be my guess in terms of projection, but for sure. So so those are kind of the three models that we'll be rolling out for for this year's draft, and um, we'll have we'll ha- we'll be posting all those up on the site in the next week or so. Um, the numbers are somewhat hot off the press, I guess. Um, what what kind of were some things that jumped out to you guys when you first ran the numbers this year? 
Yeah, so I think, well, Luka Donnett. Have you I memorized guess, everyone's similarity <laughs> scores yet? Not yet. I need to click through it. I'm so there's some tweaks to the JavaScript that need to be made that have held up the process of diving in, but I think we're to the point now where we can start memorizing every player. <laughs> Put them to music or something, help with the memorization. <laughs> exactly. Probably take a day off of work, 12 hours straight. Anyway, so PNSP this year, I think, so one thing we did incorporate this year was we did add some international, so based players by, essentially we translated their their points and their uh, production um, into into college, so we're kind of looking at a level playing field. And in doing that, uh, Luka Donich comes up as the as the top player in PNSP, and I I think I this is kind of across a lot of draft models, so it's not that surprising that I've seen it, he's come out as a top because just at his age in the Euro League, his production's just never before been seen. So and he's also kind of running a point guard position at the size he is, which is, is also kind of a rare, rare thing to see. So I, I think it's not surprising at all, and you probably would expect him to come out like that. Yeah, I think he, he he's exci- an exciting prospect for, you know, thinking about the modern NBA and some of the stuff we talked about in the, the draft theory stuff. I think he's he definitely fits that bill in a lot of ways, and I I'm glad that the models like him because I like him too. And we've kind of seen him, you know, mentioned at the top of the draft for a long time. And right now you'll see him kind of projected either one or two. Yeah. Yeah, he's – I'm a huge fan. It seems like there's some things we don't know. As I think Giovanni at ESPN was saying that, like, he might fall the way to four or five, which I, I guess I, I don't spend enough time knowing all the ins and outs, but based on just production and – the data, he seems like a pretty safe bet. Uh, beyond him, though, we'll see just, as we know with this draft, a lot of the bigs and a lot of the names that are coming out. So, Jareen Jackson kind of ranks second, followed by Aiton, both with 95, 97 scores, respectively. And so, they check the box, as a lot of people have seen. Um, interestingly, Wendell Carter Jr. ranked ahead of Bagley. I will say both ranked highly. Uh, Bagley was an 83 by PNSP and Carter a 90, and I think the reasoning behind Carter being ranked higher is just the more diverse skill set for a big man. And, you know, I think our model might struggle actually a little bit to translate to modern NBA, but I think it's pretty, I've seen it commonly among kind of scouting as well that, you know, Wendell Carter's skill set might be a better fit in today's NBA. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, definitely. You know, for the most part, aligned with with most of the mock drafts and you know your your ESPN and Gavoni and Mike Schmidt's big board. Um, what about all star probabilities? So here's an I, Luka Donich kind of breaks our model here. He comes out at it like an eighty nine percent all star probability, which I think I would be one to say so like I, I I wouldn't. <laughs> I would not say that there's an 89% chance he becomes an all-star. But at any rate, I think that just goes to show really that his numbers haven't been seen before at his age in that league. So it's just further validation to me that he, that that sort of, it would be just surprising if he was not a productive NBA player. Beyond that, I think, so you'll see kind of Aiton and Bamba as the next two, which 
is somewhat unsurprising given their physical stature. And I think what you've seen is physical freaks as they, they've, if they can master the skills and IQ, they can, you know, dominate in the NBA and that's kind of what it's built on. So it, I think that does make a lot of sense to see those two kind of come up as the, as the next highest all-star probabilities. Um, I think uh, what you'll see, what's interesting then is I, th- I believe Bagley might have ranked higher in all-star probability than Carter, but Carter, Wendell Carter Jr., ranked higher in a starter probability. So it's seeing him as more of a certainty in you know, having a mainstay in the NBA and kind of a role type, more of a super role player of such. Than, than Bagley, who might have more of an all-star, all-star probability. So for, for the big guys, you know, just thinking about um, the guys at the top of this draft, do, do the physical measurements weigh more heavily for big men than they do for the other positions, or is it... Well, it's also... So here's a good thing to understand, too. It's relative to position, right? Right. So all these models do take into account positioning, which some people... Varying degree, but I think you, you do have to kind of control with, uh, what the type of role they're going to play in the NBA. And so they're, they are above what their normal position would be, but it's not like they're being compared to somebody that has a 6'4 wingspan, right? right? So it's not like they're that much higher. They just have other skills to kind of back that as well. Mm-hmm. And that that's another interesting thing about this, right? So DeAndre Ayton right now by our models is checking out good, right? Like, you know, he looks like at the center position – he looks like he's going to be a great NBA player and has a strong probability of kind of hitting that outcome. But what what's the relative value of a right, center mm-hmm. right now, right? Like how valuable is him becoming an all-star center? Right, and I think to your point, being an all-star at that position is different than being an all-star you know, point guard or wing. Right, so I think... When you, when you do dissect these numbers and you see a lot of the centers and whatnot, I, I do actually really like the center prospects. I, I really think that when you're making your decision on who you're drafting and those GMs come to the room, it's kind of like you, do, you should really weigh kind of understanding what that value of position is and who's, how many you're going to play of each position and whatnot. So um, I, I think that's just a really important thing to kind of note as you're dissecting our numbers. Definitely. Well, as we said, we'll have we'll have all these details, you know, laid out out on the website in the next week or so. Um, give you a little a little taste of what the numbers are saying for this year. But we'll have the PNSP scores, the role probabilities, and the similarity score tool up on the website. So stay tuned for those. Um, and then once we have those rolling, we'll also be getting into our prospect profiles, which will. Um, we have some of them up from 2017, so if you want to go get a taste for what those might be doing, um, those kind of break down all the numbers on a prospect and what all of our models are saying and why and gets into a little bit more subjectivity about their fit in the NBA and how they might profile. Yeah, I think those are those are interesting because they'll provide, like, we, we look at kind of some kind of statistical indicators and kind of how those have projected and kind of hone in a little deeper dive than what you're getting with the service level numbers on the draft models. Yep, that's it for today then. Um, thanks for listening. And I think we're, we're awaiting a decision from the Martin brothers on whether they're returning to Nevada. So let's hope they're coming back for another season of uh, overs for Nevada basketball. <laughs>